Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk again about the Kingdom of God, and we're going to talk about a few myths that are floating around, that are keeping you from the kingdom of God, that are distracting you, that are, are that are turning people away from the kingdom of God, and seducing them into worse bondage than they already are today. I mean, we are in the bondage of sin now. Christ came to set us free, but he came that we might be saved. There's conditions on it. Just thinking a thought or believing or imagining that you believe in Jesus Christ does not make it so. Jesus even said that many would say that they were coming in his name, doing great things in his name, preaching the great gospel in his name. But in actuality, they are far from him. He didn't say a few. He said many. How many is that? When he was asked if the few are saved or the many are saved, he he did not really answer the question. He told people to strive. There's a gospel going around today that says you don't have to strive, you just have to believe. But Jesus said you had to strive. He said you had to seek. He said you had to be diligent. These are the words he used. But, of course, now, Paul said you just had to believe. And so everybody says, oh, yeah, we're just going to go along with Paul and we're just going to believe. We're just going to think we're saved. And then we're automatically saved. But Paul said he preached Christ first. So before he said all you had to do is believe, he said you had to seek and strive and be diligent to show thyself approved. Be diligent in what? I mean... At the time Christ came, there was a question as to tribute. He, they they tried to trick him by asking, is it lawful to pay the tribute? And he held up a coin and said, whose picture's on the, the coin? Well, according to the Pharisees, even the image of Augustus on the coin was a sin was a violation of the Torah because it was a graven image on the coin. They should, by the Pharisee's standard, they should not have even touched the coin. But he actually held it in his hand and held it up. Because the Pharisees were believing in a false Judaism. In a false teaching of Moses that had been twisted and turned until it was unrecognizable anymore from what it was originally. Oh, they were killing sheep and, you know, on piles of stone and they had ritual garments and, and they had big temples, but they didn't know God and they didn't know Moses. They kept the Sabbath. They spoke Hebrew. They read the Torah, but they did not know God because if they had known God, they would have known Christ. I'm telling you today, that the modern Christians would not know Christ. Because they've done the same type of twisting of the words right in front of them. them. When I look at the Bible 
and I listen to what preachers are saying, I say, well, how can you miss this? How can you be so deluded that you miss this? That you think you can save yourself with a thought or a phrase or an idea. That somehow or other you believe and so therefore you are saved. That you believe so therefore you are forgiven. Jesus said, if you do not forgive, neither will you be forgiven. Neither will my Father forgive you. He's telling you that. This is the Christ that Paul preached first. You weren't called a believer because you thought a thought. Even James said, if you don't walk the walk, you don't have faith. Your faith is dead. What was the walk? What were the early Christians doing? That made them so unique and, and a target for Roman anger. We've seen in the cities of, well, you, you're going to see it in Europe, but you're, we certainly have seen it recently in the United States. And, and you'll probably see it in all the other countries, Australia and everywhere else, where there is a contemptible attitude towards people. Who are not socialists. I heard a soldier. Ex-soldier. Who had been to Iraq. And all this stuff. And now he was preaching. Against. I mean. He was up demonstrating. Preaching against the war in Iraq. And the war in Afghanistan. And this. This. The military direction. That. Certain. Regimes of the United States. Has taken people. He was preaching against that. Saying that. That it was. To, to support the wealthy, you know, in the military industrial complex, which is the same thing we heard from Eisenhower when he left office. He, he warned people of the military industrial complex in that government that he had served as president of the United States. And this young previous soldier was now warning people the same thing. And the rich were, the reason we're there is for the rich, for people who want to make lots of money off of oil and control and manipulation. And of course, there is some truth to all that. But what's really going on? What is he really saying? Because in the same breath, he's saying that we could have taken all that money that we spent on the military and we could have provided health care for one another so that nobody had to do without health care. And of course, everybody cheered. So he doesn't want to make war on Afghan or Iran or you know uh, Iraq. He wants to make war on his neighbor at home. He wants to take the gun he used over there and force his neighbor to contribute to his social welfare, to his health care. He has the same spirit. That he is complaining about in the upper echelons of his government. Whether it's there or not, that's for you guys to decide. I don't want to badmouth anybody's government. Putin's government, Obama's government, Trump's government. Those governments are there to punish the wicked. And they're doing a dang good job of punishing the wicked. And all these complaints you hear coming out of people about the government. That's just the wicked complaining. That's the weeping and gnashing of teeth that was forewarned 
we were forewarned about. Because, see, you're workers of iniquity. Now, see, I'm not supposed to attack the delusions of the insane. When you, you treat the insane, you're not supposed to attack their delusions directly. You're supposed to kind of sneak up on them, I guess, and, and, and get them. Win their confidence. Well, I'd love to win your confidence. I've been working hard at winning your confidence. But I really want you to be confident in what Christ said. So I'm just telling you what he said. What Paul said. If you're covetous, you're not going to inherit the kingdom, rich or poor. And then what he said, he, he was covetous. He didn't want to pay off the debt so his children were not cursed with the debt of his generation or the generation before and the generation before that. He wanted health care for everybody because he'd get big cheers in his audience about that. He was tickling their ears. You know, that's the way it works. That's big money in tickling ears. That's a, that's a big money paying thing. Tell them the truth. You're going to end up in the wilderness just crying, your voice crying in the wilderness, and nobody wants to make straight the way of the Lord. Even though it was told to you from the beginning, you don't want to really repent. Now, I, I'm speaking to those who haven't been repenting. Now, some of you might be repenting. Some of you might be actually even tithing. Some of you well-off people might be giving half of what you give every year to take care of the needy of your society. You might be. Might not be. You might be just under another strong delusion because you've put together a formula of faith you know, with your little doctrines and religion. You know, we, we keep the Sabbath and, you know, we wear the prayer shawl and and we do all the... That's what people all... That's what the Pharisees did. They put all these little markers. Do you do this? Do you do this? Do you do this? Do you do this? But Jesus said, Woe unto them, because they weren't attending to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. If you do not have a daily ministration that takes care of all the needy of your congregation and congregations of congregations, then... Hey, guess what? You're not following Christ. You're not like the early church. You haven't repented yet. Now, anyway, so that I just lambasted you a little bit about what you haven't been doing. And told you a little bit about what people have been out there tickling the ears of people. You know, and I didn't pick on the pastors. The you know the pudding hand pastors I always love to talk about. Actually, I don't like to talk about them. I want to talk about the kingdom, not all the roads you went down that are the wrong roads. I want I want to talk about the kingdom of God and His righteousness. But you keep going down the wrong roads, a false religion. You know where you you put together that little checklist. And none of it includes sacrifice. In for not not for preachers who sit in and talk all day in church, 
get you all worked up about all those other guys and what they're doing wrong. Here I, I'm the only one left that comes and got to tell you what you're doing wrong. And I'm trying to tell you what you could do that would make it right. So that you would start to listen and, and hear. And he would hear you, God's voice. And so anyway, I, I announced to the network, which everybody should be on, and and that network should be putting together congregations that are actually giving every week, every, you know, t- gathering, giving into a system of social welfare that takes care of the needy of your society through faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty. But people just don't want to do that. They want to go to a church that makes them feel good. Christ didn't come to make you feel good. He challenged your delusion. He did it in parables. Because it wasn't given unto many people to know. And so he had that's how he was sneaking up on them with parables. If he came right out and started telling the truth, they would have, you know, telling him directly the truth. He was telling the truth in parables. Telling the truth, they would have crucified him right away. And of course, we did see that they tried to throw him over a cliff right away. Because he was saying the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And he was a Nazarene. Which doesn't mean he was from the town of Nazareth. But you can believe that if that's what you want to believe. That he was from this town of Nazareth. These are all part of the folklore that grows up around there. And they, they fiddle with the words a little bit. If you actually look at the early Greek text, it doesn't, doesn't seem to make sense. And, and we can't really find Nazareth as an early city. He was a Nazarene. And so was John the Baptist. And when they said he was from Nazareth, from the Nazareans, everybody knew what that meant. He believed in a voluntary system of charity. They didn't like that. They wanted to throw him over a cliff because they had a system of Corbin that they signed up through their local synagogues who were part of the temple that provided social welfare by forcing the contributions of the people through a system of social security. There was a huge fund had built up and Herod was able to build the temple with this fund because he had money coming in on a regular basis because all these people had signed up with him for this social welfare system where no man would be left behind. In other words, everybody would have to pay in, but everybody would supposedly be taken care of. But of course, a forced offering is that is collected by men in an office of power. And before you know it, men who seek power will seek that office. Ananias had been the high priest at one time. And he couldn't keep doing that because it was a rotating office, always had been. You know, it would rotate amongst the 
the the Levites of different tribes, you know, that were serving different tribes. The Levites were a tribe, but they served one of, you know, the eleven tribes. You know, you were serving somebody in the tribe of Reuben or somebody in the tribe of Benjamin or somebody in the tribe of Judah. And so, therefore, the highest amongst the Levites was the servant of all, but the temple used to move around from tribal area to tribal area. And so, when you were in this tribal area, a Levite from that tribal area would sit in the position of high priest. And that's that's the way it worked for many years. But what were these Levites doing? They were serving the tabernacles of the congregation, the tents of the congregation, in a system of social welfare that took care of the needy of their society, the widows and orphans who fell through the cracks of, you know, failed families. You know, people died, people were killed, people were murdered, people got injured, people got sick, and they needed help. And so you always had this system of social welfare that was run by the Levites to take care of the needy. And the way they did that was people tied to them and they had the funds and the resources and the servants. They talk about servants to the Levites who went around and operated a system of health, educational welfare. And for 400 years there were no taxes in Israel, because it was a voluntary society. It was literally an anarchy. No rulers. No kings. There were no kings in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. But the good men knew that we needed to take care of the needy of our society in hope that the society would be there if we ever fell on need. And so they were bound together by faith, hope, and charity, which is love. Because they loved their neighbor as much as themselves, they would tithe for taking care of their neighbor. In other words, they would give to a minister. They would tithe to the minister according to his service. What was his service? Take care of the needy of society. Not the slothful of society, the needy of society. They didn't depend upon a central government to establish justice. They did it themselves. And then sometimes they didn't do it themselves and they fell into corruption. But they were, the people were the government of the people for the people and by the people. They taxed themselves and called it a tithe. And they did this for hundreds of years. And then somebody got the great idea. Let's elect a king. Let's elect a man who would be the chief executive officer of our government. And he would make sure that people were not corrupt in our government. We could do it ourselves. But let's hire somebody else to do it. To exercise authority on our behalf. And then we can, you know, go do our own thing. And so they did. Even though they were warned that he would come and take and take and take and take and take. And that when you cried out, I'm not even going to hear you, God says. And they still wanted to do that. 
Now you have that soldier crying out. They're taking and taking and taking. They're taking your sons and making them run before the chariots. I mean, he didn't use those words, but that's what we hear in Samuel. And he's whining and complaining and crying out that they're doing this. And we have to stop them. Well, why should God hear you? Because out of the same mouth, in the same minute, you said, let's take from our neighbors so that we can all have social welfare and health care. That's the wicked there. Oh, I mean, he's got a good argument maybe about some things, but then he just argues for evil. His choice is devil in deep blue sea. Nobody's choosing Christ. Nobody's choosing the way of Christ to take care of one another. And God will not hear them. And they will go down like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the and the zealots all went down and had one thing in common. They all hated the followers of Christ. Now, be honest now, there were some Pharisees that repented and followed Christ. And there were probably zealots who repented and followed Christ. And there were probably even Sadducees who repented and followed Christ. And you had thousands getting baptized one day and then thousands more the next day. And how many more thousands later on? All Jews accepting Jesus Christ as the Christ, as the anointed, as the king. You don't have to wait 2,000 years because the, the Jews rejected Christ. Jews accepted Christ. Anybody who tells you that, they don't know what they're talking about. Right there in the Bible, you see thousands one day, thousands the next day, accepting Christ. Gathering together in a network of charity to live by faith, hope, and charity according to the perfect law of liberty. And that's the believers. If you're not doing that, you're not a believer. You don't have the fruit of belief. You say, oh, I don't think we can do this. Because, you know, I mean, how do we, it's too much. We can't do it. Oh, you got to go do this first. And I got to go do that first. Well, you're dead. Your faith is dead. Because you're not doing, you're not doers of the word. So let's change that. And let's stop listening to all these guys who distract you from doing that. We need to stop listening to those detractors and distractors of the truth of the kingdom of God is at hand within your reach. Stop following all these ideologies with every wind of doctrine. Rapture, no rapture. I mean, if you weren't following this doctrine, we wouldn't have to spend all this time saying that's not it. I'm telling you what it is. It is actually loving thy neighbor as thyself and loving God. And God had a system that he created in the beginning which we call nature. And I'm going to show you how people are straying from that so that you don't go that way when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. 
welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. We've, I could talk to you about a lot of things that I've seen in the news, but maybe we'll talk about that at uh, one of our later shows today. If you want to find out about all of our shows, you have to join the network and and uh, connect with others who are seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and uh, and see how. Uh, it works to be a part of that early kingdom of Christ, appointed by Christ. I said I was going to talk about the myth of authority. And there's, there, if you look that up, you Google that, you'll find a lot of people talking about the myth of authority, uh, Larkin Rose, but there's a lot of other authors. And I'll go through some of the things that they write to find out, it, are they steering you in the right direction? Are they steering you towards the liberty of Christ? Or are they steering you into another pit of of despair and, and self-destruction? Uh, we recently saw somebody had molested a bunch of children. A couple of guys, I guess, had molested a bunch of children. And they just went and committed suicide. That That is a typical pattern. You see these guys who go and shoot people at malls and kill their family. And then they get cornered and they kill themselves. They are a part of a self-destructive spirit. And, and we see that in the Bible. Remember when the guy was, had the demons cast out of him and and uh, Christ cast the demons into pigs and the pigs went and did what? Killed themselves. Because there are things going on in, in the nature which includes the spiritual realm that most people don't understand. But that pattern, we see it over and over and over again. And that pattern is becoming more and more pervasive. I've never seen it stronger than I have seen it in this last year. With whole sections of the population. In the United States and all other countries. Look at Aleppo. Look at Syria. It isn't just the funding of ISIS and all this stuff that is bringing that about. It's a spiritual choice that's being made by the people. And you're still operating in their world in their realm and they're they're sucking you in to their destructive spirit people said you know all you have to do is follow your conscience no you have to follow Christ's conscience you have to let God write upon your heart and your mind there are other spirits who want to write upon your heart and your mind and they get you to think oh well if we do this then God will be pleased if we do this, we do, God will be pleased. No, if you do the will of the Father, God will be pleased. And what does the will of the Father look like? It looks like a network of people who care about one another, who are tending to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith, because they have a daily ministration that does not neglect the needy of their society, and they end up with so much surplus that they're actually able to help out other people who are not a part of their society, their church, their community, their common union, their communion, their Eucharist, but they can still help them out. And they can use discretion in how they do that. And that's why the early church, even though it started out as just being the citizens of Judea, accepting Jesus as the Christ, as the King, by the thousands with nothing to wait for. 
The kingdom was at hand. They preached the kingdom. There is another king, one Jesus. And they went out and were that kingdom, which was just like the Levites, a system of voluntary government. An anarchy of voluntary government. Because they were told by Jesus to not rule one over the other, but to serve one another. Christ wasn't creating offices of power. He was creating offices of service. And men of service sought that office. Of course, there were men who wanted to convert and pervert that office to offices of power. And we see that today. Your leaders of your governments are offices of power. And you gave them that power. When you rejected God that you would not be ruled over by God, you wanted to be ruled over by other people. Like George Washington or or Thomas Jefferson or... uh, Rockefellers or the uh, Roosevelt's of the world. The Nimrods of the world. You know, the mighty providers instead of God. And you didn't mind taking a bite out of your neighbor and so now you've been devoured, you've been turned into merchandise and you've cursed your children. Okay, that's where we're at. And now guys say they want to shake their fist. You know, we don't want to fight in Iraq. We don't want to be told what to do. We want to be free men. But do you want to be free men under God or you just want to be free men? Do you want to serve God or do you just want to serve yourself? Is your conscience that you're listening to your conscience or is it the consciousness of God? The Christ consciousness, the the Spirit of God writing upon your heart and your mind? Or is it just you, your selfish nature? Well, that soldier, nice guy, seemed like a nice guy. He's just selfish. He doesn't want to use his gun to fight people in Iraq or Iran, and I understand that. But he wants to use his gun to force you to pay for his health care. Wow. I don't have anything to do with that guy. Now, I would actually go and talk to that guy. I'd I'd give him a hug even. But I'd tell him what's what. I said, no, you can't do that. You You can't tell me that you're a man of peace and you want to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare or anybody else's welfare. You want to exercise authority. People who want to tear down government, they call themselves anarchists too. But anarchists don't want to tear down government. They're not anti-government. A real anarchist. Because to be anti-government means you want to rule over people who want government. People who want government should have government. Let them have their government. I don't want to tear their government down. I know their government will punish them. I know their government will take and take and take and take. And I know their government will take their daughters. And I know they'll eventually cry out. I know this. Samuel knew it. But if you want to have that government, I don't want to exercise authority over you and not let you have it. I don't want, I'm not anti-government. I'm pro-government. And if you want that kind of government, you go ahead and have it. But God preached another kind of government that was a voluntary government that did not work on taxes, but worked on tithes. Where people freely gave and freely received. And their welfare was not a snare. It didn't create a social contract. Ooh. Did I say the bad word? Social contract? Nobody wants to hear that. Especially the myth of authority group. 
So anyway, I said I was going to talk about the myth of the myth of authority <laughs> argument. Because there is authority. And there's authority in nature. But we'll start at the beginning. One of the things they say, and I'm going to quote from their writings, and there's at least three different authors here that I'm going to quote from, including Larkin Rose. And, you know, he can come on one of our call-in shows and debate it if he wants. Uh, and so can the other guys. But anyway, uh, government will always become the oppressor and exploiter of the people. Why? No. See, here's a misconception you have right off. First word, government. You go look up, go go to preparing you and look up government. I just took, I just googled the word government, took the definitions right off the top. Nowhere does it say that government necessarily includes men who exercise authority one over the other. Government is just the way in which you govern yourselves. In the state of nature, you governed yourself. You were the government. If ten guys got together in the state of nature with no social contract between them, no contract of any kind between them, whatever they did was how they governed themselves. They were the government. Now, they were the government within the laws of nature. You know, they couldn't suddenly, you know, get together and all vote. We're all going to fly now. And then start flying. I mean, they, there's limits to their power. But they were the government of the people, for the people, and by the people. They were all together, governing themselves, making choices themselves. They decided to help out or huddle around the fire. That's what the government was doing that day. But that's government. Government is what you do. And how you do it. So all governments don't become oppressors. All governments of oppressors become oppressors. And this is, this is, it seems like kind of a silly thing to even go through all the trouble of saying this. But the reality is, if you're in an oppressive government, nine times out of ten, and that's an understatement, it's because you've been oppressing the other people in your nation. You've been oppressing people, and so therefore your government is oppressive. You've been biting one another and you've been devoured by the very beast you created. And I can't find anybody who can argue against that. Now, you can argue against it when you're not on one of our call-ins. <laughs> but you can't argue against it uh, if you're going to... Because I, I can prove to you that you've been taking a bite out of one another from the beginning of last century and even before. You've been taking away the rights of others all along. And your parents before you. But anyway, he goes on to say, To make this sound less absurd, the people are taught nonsensical mythology about democracy, representative government, and the consent of the governed. Well, that's nice to say the word like nonsensical mythology. But now let's prove it. I mean, a democracy is a democracy. A representative government has representatives. Consent of the governed? Well, there's lots of ways you give consent. You don't necessarily have to do it on a black and white contract. And we've talked about that many times. And we'll talk about it some more. But let's go on. 
But there are several ways to easily, and I don't know why they spell easily that way. You think they'd... Uh, of course, I misspell words all the time, and I have lots of proofreaders that help us get those things cleared up because I have very little time to do all this. You won't believe what my schedule is today. <laughs> Easily prove that government cannot possibly be legitimate. Never has been and never will be. Well, wait a minute. See there, he's using that word government again. And again, the government doesn't have anything to do necessarily with rulers. Most governments you see today have rulers. The most common form of government throughout the history of mankind, according to the book, The Enterprise of Law, is a voluntary government. Where you you might elect a representative, but he is can only represent, he can't, make rules, can't make laws, can't... He's titular. He he doesn't have any real power. You know, is it, well, we'll elect Joe to go over there and talk to Steve, who's the head of this other tribe on the other side of the river. You know, because we can't all get in the boat and go over there. So Steve goes over, and he, or Joe goes over and talks to Steve. And then you come back and tell us what they want. And he comes back and tells them what he wants. They don't have to do it. They don't have to do what the guy wants. Maybe the guy wants to help. He wants help building a bridge across the river. Who knows what he wants? And then you guys get to all decide whether you'll help them build the bridge across the river. That's government. There's no exercising authority because you don't have to have rulers to have government. You just have to govern yourselves. Cooperate. I mean, when you sit down and say, hey, you know, if you give me this cow, I'll give you my mule. That's government. That's how you govern yourselves. You make an agreement. And you make the exchange and you walk away. You don't let the sun set on a debt. You know? That's that's government. That's how you governed yourself. Now, you can use government, you know, and, and narrow the definition of government to mean only governments that have rulers. But then you should always use the adjective authoritarian governments. Because the word itself does not include that in the the basic definitions that I just got off Google. That they they can include rulers, but it doesn't have to. But so anyway, he keeps saying this. Prove that governments cannot possibly be legitimate. That's ridiculous. That's absurd. Anybody who's going around saying that kind of stuff is a fool. And you should not listen to him. Until he sits down and says, oh, you know, that's right. Government doesn't have to necessarily include rulers. It can include representatives. Not a mythology. It's it's a reality. But if you want to hear that all governments are illegitimate and that you don't have to obey government, you don't have to pay taxes, you won't. I mean, you're already primed to want to believe that. You're going to believe this guy. You're not going to ask. He said, "Wait a minute. What do you mean, government?" <laughs> Let's define your terms. I mean, he goes on and talks about a lot of ways. He says the punchline 
revisited at the end of his document. This is Larkin Rose, by the way. Contrary to what nearly everyone has been taught to believe, government, he puts in quotations, is not necessary for civilization. It is not conductive to civilization. It is, in fact, the antithesis to civilization. Well, I would beg to differ with that statement because of two words at least, and that is civilization and government. Civilization is defined as the stage of human social development and organization, not or organization, and organization that is considered most advanced. So this is organization that's most advanced. Now that, that's an opinion. It's a definition. You can look it up. There's other better definitions, but that's the first one that popped up. But let's look at the word civil, because it's civilization. That's like mobilization. Mobilization is things that are put into motion. Civilization are things that are put into civil. So what's civil? Civil of or relating to an ordinary citizen and their concerns as distinct from military ecclesiastical matters. That's just one definition. But civil has to do with citizens. So what's a citizen? This is the way you figure out what words mean, what people are really saying. And you need to do this sometimes so you can say the right things. And that's why we are always defining words as we mean them so that you can actually understand what we're saying. Citizen defined a legally recognized subject or national of a state or commonwealth, either native or naturalized. Now, that's pretty basic. Now, there's lots of different kinds of citizens, but it says right out there, subject or national. Now, does that mean that some national citizens are not subject? Well, it could. You know, you have to apply these. These are words. The words are fluid. They can have different meanings in different places and so you have to be very careful. But if you're a national, you're not in a state of nature. You're already in the state of the nation. It's a national of a state or commonwealth. You're no longer walking around ten guys in the state of nature. Something has become corporate. Something has been bound together in some form or another. You may be subject, you may be national, but you're of a state or commonwealth. That's a citizen. In order to get to that place, you have to become civilized. So, you know, where where is this going? What's the key word in that definition of citizen? A legally recognized subject or national, national of a state or commonwealth. Legally. Legally comes from the Latin word lex legis, meaning to bind. This person is bound either as a subject or a national in a state or commonwealth. That's how you get civilized. So, what he should be putting there, if you really want to talk to him, is that he says that this whole thing about being taught to believe that government is necessary for a civilization it is not conducive of civilization. It is, in fact, the antithesis of civilization is completely misappropriating that word civilization, which has to do with citizens that are either subjects or nationals of a state or commonwealth. 
The word that he really should be thinking about is not how we get civilized. It's how we get righteous. Righteous in the state of nature is different than just being in the state of nature. Because you can be in the state of nature and just be dog-eat-dog, murderous. And, you know, that's Hobbes thinks that if you're in this state of nature, you will be this immoral, selfish, bestial monster who just goes around and bludgeons people over the head and, you know, takes women for his own use, you know, and everything. And he's just this brute walking around. Well, Cain was kind of that brute, but he went and got everybody civilized. He started a city-state and made sure that everybody in his city-state were citizens of his city-state. Abel and Seth, they didn't do that. They were just good shepherds. They were leading their flocks by the still waters, showing them where the green pastures were. And, and guiding them. You don't push sheep around the field. You lead them and they go here or they go there. And But they have to eat themselves and they have to, you know, take care of themselves and they have to be healthy themselves. You don't, you don't match them up. They've, they work it out. And I've, I've shown, you can go on our website and see pictures. Sheep all standing shoulder to shoulder. I didn't teach them to do that. They gather in little groups of seven to ten sheep when they're out grazing. And they stand shoulder to shoulder, literally touching shoulders sometimes as they graze. And if one group is missing, they go looking for that group and call to that group and call for it to come back. And they're just dumb sheep. They got most people in the world today outsmarted. Now, wolves come together, too, so that they can pull down elk and deer. So they gather together, too. So anyway, let's go back to this idea. You don't necessarily want to be civilized. I don't want to be civilized. I don't want to be bound as either a subject or a national in a state or commonwealth. Not legally. I want to be bound by faith, hope, and charity, by love. That's what I want to be bound by. And I don't want to be bound by any other substitute. Now, if you want to be bound by love with a group of people who want to be bound by love but don't want to exercise authority one over the other, then you need to start seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness, which is a government. It's a voluntary government, but it's a government. So, I've just redefined a lot of their words. According to the definitions, you can just go get on Google. And I, I, I just showed you that the most dangerous superstition is that they know what they're talking about. Because they don't. They go on to say, belief in authority, which includes all belief in government, is irrational and self-contradictory. It is contrary to civilization, and morality and constitutes the most dangerous, destructive superstition that has ever existed. Well, that's just not true. Authority is natural. You didn't create yourself. 
Who created you? Whoever created you should have authority over you. Who, when you were a helpless little baby, this is why God has us coming into the world as helpless little babies. So we realize that somebody's in authority over us. Somebody is giving us life. We're born in debt to that person. So authority is natural. But how do we stray from that nature? We'll talk about that when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. We'll be right back. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. Uh, We're talking about this myth of authority argument. And I'm being a little bit of a devil's advocate, and I'm picking on uh, some of these authors. Uh, and I'm I'm doing it so that we, you know, that I, I I'm not saying that they're not they don't have any sincerity, uh, that they have no redeeming characteristic or quality. But I'm telling you that this myth of authority, this idea that authority doesn't exist. Uh, is a real snare and a trap and can get you into a lot of trouble. And it's a misconception. It's not what Christ came. Christ said, all authority has been given unto me. Now, you may think you're a Christian and you're following Christ, therefore now you have access to all authority. No, you don't. And there's the, the secondary argument that will come up is that, you know, that you, the nap, you know, uh, you don't do anything, you don't take anything by force, you don't do any of that, uh, where you're, uh, ruling over somebody else. 
and they call it the violation of the nap, which is non-aggressive something or other. I can't even remember right now. I have an article up on it. <laughs> it escapes me at the moment. It's not enough to take nothing by force. You're under tribute because of sloth. That's what the Bible says. The slothful shall be under tribute. Well, being slothful doesn't mean that you took anything by force. You're under tribute because you of something you didn't do. You see, because it's not enough not to take the benefits of men who exercise authority one over the other. You have to become the benefactors who do not exercise authority one over the other. This was the message of Christ. Christ was an anarchist. He said, he did he he was a true anarchist. He wasn't like the anarchist who wanted to throw, overthrow government. He did not want to overthrow government. He wouldn't even overthrow the Pharisees. When he cast the money changers out of the temple, that was his job as the king. Since the days of King David, it was the job of the king to fire the porters of the temple if they were corrupt. And he called them a den of thieves and he fired them. You're fired, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired. In other words, you can't sit at this table anymore and collect the tax, which is what they were doing. If you go read our article on the, the, the uh, uh, you know, these, these supposed merchants, uh, these money changers that were in the temple. Why were they changing money? Because you had to use their coins to pay the tax. If you were going to pay Roman tax, you had to pay Roman tax and Roman coin. If you were going to pay uh, Jewish tax at the Jewish government temple, you had to pay it in Jewish coin. So you had to have a guy there to exchange, you know, money changers to exchange the coins. You know, whatever you brought in to pay your tax with, if you're going to bring in sheep or whatever, you had that's the way maybe you were paying your tax. But why was there such a tax? Because according to the Bible, there's only supposed to be a half shekel paid once a year. Which is like a half a dime. And if somebody didn't have a half a dime and they were a pretty good neighbor in your congregation of tens, hundreds, and thousands, or tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands, you you would pay their half shekel. That's all they had to pay. That's total tax. In the nation of of Judea and Israel and everything. But the they had to pay a lot more taxes at that time. And we show you the calculations of historians as to what the taxes would have been in that particular month. It's like $90 million in silver. I mean, it was, it was huge amounts. And the money changers got to take a clip of that. They don't teach you this in your churches because they're too busy tickling your ears. Deceiving you that you've been saved because you thought a thought. They're not telling you what Christ was really doing. He's firing the money changers, the porters of the temple, like he always did. But he did not appoint new ones. Why? Because that's not when you appoint new ones in the month of Adar. You do it at Pentecost. And how do you do that? The king doesn't appoint new ones. He's not supposed to. They were doing it at that time. They had been since the Hasmoneans. They had done it before. They weren't supposed to. 
the people were to get together in congregations of ten and pick a minister. And that minister would get together in a congregation of ten ministers and he would pick a minister. And eventually they would get up to the men who would be the porters of the temples. And they would, they had rank. And they would be servants of servants of servants. But everything that was given was a voluntary offering. Free will offering. They never mentioned charity in the Old Testament, but they mentioned free will offering all the time. That's how they supported the government of Israel. The first time they had a tax in Israel other than that little shackle, that little half dime, was with Saul. But they had already rejected God and elected Saul. The voice of the people, it says. Elected Saul. And he was appointed king. And he saw the Philistines going to come. You know, and so he... He saw them massing an army and he, his army wasn't ready and he needed supplies, he needed food, he needed, he needed stuff for his army. And he forced a sacrifice. That's what it says. Forced a sacrifice. What minister tells you about that? Because Samuel comes in and makes a big deal out of it. Says, you've done this foolish thing. You forced an offering. Well, what do you mean? He forced people to burn up sheep? Yeah, because because now God, you know, they forced people to burn up sheep. I don't, I don't, I don't get it. How's that going to help them with the Philistines? It was a peace offering. Forced them. Well, that's just an offering to support the military. They weren't burning up sheep. That's a metaphor. That's an allegory of what they were doing. These altars weren't always living stones. Supposed to be. Until they unmoor that. And then they say, oh, you know, you got to do this weird ritual. No, this was how they supported the welfare system. And they did it through the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. Who, when they were attacked, those same tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands became the platoons and battalions and companies of the military because everybody had a sword on their side because that's what Moses even tells them how to build the sword because they were defending one another attending to the weightier matters you guys aren't doing that the Christians did that they all had swords they didn't have to defend themselves against government they didn't have to defend themselves against the Romans because, you know, Trajan, Hadrian said, leave the Christians alone long before Constantine. Now, they ran into prejudice and hate, you know. They were accused falsely of, like, burning down Rome. But you're seeing that same spirit in your own streets today. People marching in the streets, hating you know, they, they want to elect a leader and they get one that they didn't like. <laughs> so then they go out and knock, break windows and burn cars. Uh, you know, the, you know they'll burn down some city and then they'll blame it on somebody else. Anyway, let's get back to this. This idea that this belief in authority, which includes all belief in government, false statement is irrational and self-contradictory 
It is contrary to civilization. Well, I don't know about that. And morality. They constitute the most dangerous, destructive superstition that has ever existed. That is a self-serving, egotistical, non-Christian idea because Jesus came preaching a government. An all-voluntary government based on faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty. And they were uncivilized. They were idiotists, as it says in the Bible in the, in the Greek. They were not subjects or nationals. They were individuals. They weren't bound together in a legal system with a social contract of any kind. They loved one another. And it made them what the what uh, Gibbons calls, talks about the early Christian community being a viable republic in the heart of the Roman Empire. Viable living republic in the heart of the Roman Empire. But you have to understand what a republic is. You elected a minister and you elected him by donating to him. And he represented you to other ministers. But he was titular. That's in the definition of republic. Go way back. You know, you don't have to go way, way back. Just back to early America. Webster's. Republics, the leaders are representatives and they're titular. Your leaders up in the democracy of the United States, the federal democracy of the United States, they call themselves lawmakers. They're not... See, they're, they're having the same problem as Larkin does. They don't look up words. They don't find out what words mean. And they use them all the time. But they don't know what they mean. Government is not against morality. Only immorality is against morality. To get together and govern yourselves as a free people, respecting the rights of your neighbor and caring about the rights of your neighbor. It's not enough not to do harm to your neighbor or to, to seize or usurp his rights. It's not enough not to usurp his rights. You have to protect his rights. You have to come to the defense of his rights. You have to care about his property as much as you care about your property. That's not necessarily civilized. It might be civilized, but it's not necessarily civilized. If you do it according to the perfect law of liberty, you remain uncivilized, but righteous and moral. And a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. When I was interviewed by CNN, that was one of the first questions they asked. What do you think about government? I love government. I think government's great. It's all kinds of government. And the spirit in you is going to draw you to the government that is like you. If you covet your neighbor's goods, you're going to end up in a government that's going to take away and make you merchandise. Through covetous practices, they will make you merchandise. And you will curse your children. Done deal. That's not the fault of government. That's the fault of the spirit that dwelleth in you. You want to get that spirit out of you. You have to look at that spirit and realize, I screwed up. 
my parents screwed up, my grandparents screwed up because they didn't listen to what Christ said, what Moses said. Stop coveting your neighbor's goods. Start loving your neighbor. That means stop stepping on his toes, stop taking away his stuff, and start caring about him, sacrificing to be there for him. He goes on to say, rather than being a force for order and justice, the belief in authority is the arch enemy, it's interesting he uses arch enemy, uh, of humanity. On the contrary, being moral person requires taking on the personal responsibility of judging right from wrong and following one's own conscience the opposite of respecting and obeying authority. Now, I understand what he's saying there. He's partially right here. I mean, certainly. You know, I I say this all the time. That rights always have this cool relative aspect to them, like the, the two sides of a coin, heads and tails. Rights and responsibilities. And But judging right and wrong, discerning right and wrong. Let's use that word instead of judging. It's a little bit like judging, but it's a little different. And there's a reason why I do that. But following one's own conscience, well, you're going to do that anyway, whether I do anything about it or not. But no, you need to be following the conscience of Christ. You need to have God writing upon your heart and upon your mind. If you don't write upon your heart and your mind, allow God to write upon your heart and your mind, somebody else is going to do it for you. They're going to write on your heart and your mind. They're going to say, yeah, it's okay to kill these people. It's okay to bomb Aleppo. It's okay to do, you know, whatever it is. You know, it's okay to molest these eight children. It's okay to kill yourself. It's okay to go into a strip mall and start shooting people. You're following your conscience, right? The reality is your conscience is the authority that you're following. And that's why you're in bondage. Because you've been following your conscience. You've been giving other men authority. You've been rejecting God right along. Your parents before you. Now, I'm not doing that to condemn them. You need to be humble enough to see that that's where you've gone. That's the road you've gone down. If you, you know, what is this thing where men never want to ask directions? You've already been following the wrong directions. Now, Now, you're way out in the middle of the bog surrounded by quicksand and you don't want to admit that you'd made a wrong turn. You need to admit you made a wrong turn and turn around and go back the other way. That's what you need to do. You need to go back the other way. You need to trace your steps back, get out of the bog and get on the right path. Your It doesn't say that to covetous this, you will be really upset about the government that you find trying to rule over you. It says, through covetous practices, you will be made merchandise. It says, you will be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. It says that you will curse your children, which is put debt on your children. It says you will do all these things. Then you say, but Jesus saved us. No, Jesus and the apostles said, you're going to do this again. You're going to claim to be doing things in my name, but you're not. 
Now, the good news is, is you can start doing things in God's name. And he will start hearing you. And that's called seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And it requires that you come together and you strive. It also requires that you forgive others. Does that mean you just forgive the people you gather with? No, you have to forgive the governments of the world. You you can't be saying they owe you. You have to forgive them. They're broke anyway. They're not going to pay you. You know, this whole thing recently, you know, with the Bundys and all this stuff out in Mulherry, I've talked about all that kind of stuff. And now uh, the President of the United States, the sitting President of the United States, just made all these national monuments, which includes another one point, well, I see, I've seen two figures, 1.3 million and 1.6 million acres of ground are being turned into national monuments. Well, according to one of the representatives of the people, elected by the people, they say the actual ground that needs to be, that could, that they're trying to protect as monuments, you know, they actually put a picture up when they tweeted this out to the world, and it was a picture of the wrong location, but the actual monuments that they're talking about is only a few hundred acres. And they could protect, because it's, you know, it's areas where there's artifacts and all this kind of stuff. But they're adding another million and a half acres. And why are they doing that? Why, why is it, are they, all these ranchers out here who live out here and are seeing the process saying that this is a big land grab? Because there are mineral rights, water rights, and there are minerals, gold, uh, you know, that's why the one's called Gold Hill. <laughs> and there's all these things. And they environmentalists think that they're protecting that for us. You know what they're doing? is securing assets of the United States for their debtors. That's what they're doing. They're going to mine them. And they're going to bring their own people in to do it. You've already been sold out. You're already a surety for debt. Because you've been listening to guys who say the myth of authority. Christ, he said, I'm going to take the kingdom from you and I'm going to give it to another. That's not a myth of authority. Christ recognizes authority. The Ten Commandments, you have to, if you have any right over any of your property, over yourself, over your labor, that's authority. If there ain't no authority, then you don't have no rights. The fact is, is what they, these guys don't want to look at is how they lost authority over themselves. How did they lose their labor? Nobody wants to look at that. They want to think that they already know where they're at. Well, they're not, you're not going to find your way back unless you look at things objectively. He goes on to say, contrary to the usual assumption that the absence of government would mean chaos and destruction, it will be shown that when the myth of authority is abandoned, much will change. But much will also stay the same. It will be shown why rather than relief in a belief in government being conducive uh, to and necessary for the peaceful society, 
As nearly everyone has been taught, the belief is by far the biggest obstacle to mutual beneficial organization. Organization? That sounds like government. Cooperation? That could be government. Peaceful coexistence? That still could be government. In short, it will be shown why true civilization, wait a minute, you mean the binding of citizens, can and will exist only rather than the myth of authority has been eradicated. If you listen to some of these people and not just read their words, you will see that they are appealing to your sense of it's all their fault. They've done this to us. They're exercising authority. These same people, they went, their parents sent them to public schools. These same people, their parents were taken care of by Social Security. It wasn't taken care of by them. If you did away with government today, if you absolutely just said, okay, we're going to do away with government. We don't need government. We're going to do away with it. No police. Uh, all the police guys can go home. Uh, we're, we're not going to have any more courts. We're not going to have any more, you know, there's no traffic laws. You can go as fast as you want. You can go as slow as you want. No, not going to be anybody out there giving tickets. I'm not in favor of that kind of government. But I'm saying, what would happen if all that went away? You think there wouldn't be chaos? Well, I think there'd be absolute chaos. And you're all going to probably get a chance to find out. Because that probably will all go away <laughs> these days. But there would be total chaos. There would be people, you know, for all the people on welfare, they're not going to get any more checks. All the people working for the government, they're all going to be unemployed. They're not going to be getting any more checks. Your public school teachers are all out of work. Policemen aren't going to be getting any more checks. Everybody's going to have to go out and figure, you can't make that change without chaos. I mean, it would take years and years. And there's an art to living as a free people. That's a skill set. Your people don't have that skill. The idea that you can just do away with this and everybody will just all of a sudden start getting along, is that's insane. They will not. Now, eventually they, they will. But the fact is, is What's going to happen is certain segments of the population are not going to give up government. They're not going to give up binding themselves together under a strong leader who exercises authority. One over there. You'll have some guys just going out and burning things and stealing stuff. And I mean, look at, look what you see in Europe. A lot of these immigrants, they just walk into a store and start robbing it. They just grab clothes off the shelf and they grab groceries and they just start walking out and you know you see the youtubes where some girl goes out and wrestles the stuff away from the guy and takes it away from him. he's just going to take it nobody's going to stop him and the people you know they're raping they're and they're getting away with it you know some kid uh, some kids i think it was like six kids or something they went in and want to get cigarettes and the the storekeeper you know, sixty-year-old, eighty-year-old lady didn't want to sell, wouldn't sell them cigarettes, and so they beat her with sticks, beat her till like her eye almost come out. Nobody, they they weren't arrested because they're underage. They weren't arrested because they're underage. They get to be, they going to do this again? Yeah, you bet you they're going to do this again. And you still have law enforcement. And that's what's happening. 
You think that's not going to happen everywhere else? Well, it is. And so what people are going to do is they're going to band together and they're going to form governments, small governments, tribal governments. And they're going to rob, they're going to march into your neighborhood and just take whatever they want. And then you're going to have to come together to fight them off. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, this is why Christ was preaching the kingdom of God. You know, later on, Christians did pull out their swords and fight invading people. They did do that. Very clearly they did that. And some of them were considered bad guys by historians. But that's what they were doing. They were, But they did it only in defense of the weak. They didn't wage war on other people except when people waged war on them. Vast areas became Christian. And Rome would not march into that. They don't tell you about that, do they? Oh, wonder why. But the Christians never intended to be anti-government. They were they were pro-government. They were just pro. There is another king, one Jesus. We're taking care of ourselves. We don't eat at the table of rulers who exercise authority one over the other. We put a knife to our own throats, not to your throat. We're not going to tear down your government. You can have your government. You can have your benefits. We're not going to take from... We're not even going to ask back all the money that we paid into your coffers. You can have that. We forgive that. But they started learning what it meant to be a free people. They started learning the responsibility. These guys are saying, oh, you just don't have to pay the government. Starve the beast. You don't starve the beast. It runs on debt. It loves it when you don't pay taxes. They don't care. What they don't want to see you do is righteousness. That's what they're afraid of. And that's what these guys need to be preaching. We'll talk to you about righteousness when we come back. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, anyway, I was actually answering emails during the break. <laughs> uh, trying to stay busy so that people can uh, uh, get this. As soon as I'm done with the show today, I've got to run out and deal with other uh, uh, situations and uh, things. It's very busy seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It's not... It's not sitting in a pew. It's not listening to long sermons trying to explain to you. It's it's about doing what Christ said to do all along. And if you don't want to do that, I can't help you. Um, one of the uh, things that uh, were uh, 
you know, I'll talk, I'll address some of these issues, like I say, in later shows. But, uh, you know, when I'm, I'm reading some of these things that these guys write, one of them here, I'll, I'll read it to you. It says, to look at it another way, he says, and to make it more personal. Imagine living in a world where none of your neighbors felt justified in advocating that you be taxed to fund things which you object to. Well, the fact is, you have to imagine it, because that ain't going to happen. Imagine if every cause, every plan, every program, every idea, every proposed solution to all sorts of problems was something you could either voluntarily support or not. Imagine living in a world uh, where none of your neighbors felt that they had the right to forcibly impose their ideas, choices, and lifestyles upon you. They would feel justified, as they do already, in using force I don't know how I says they they would feel justified, he says, as they do already in using force to stop you if you decided to attack them or rob them, but very few would feel good about committing any sort of aggression against you. Contrary to what most people assume, this exactly what a uh, world without rules would look like. No. That's not. That's not. Anarchy is not a world without rules. Anarchy is a world without rulers. With uh, Where people... And he advocates anarchy, but he doesn't define it right. It's not a world without rules. There are rules. I mean, there's gravity. There's, I mean, there's the rule of not exercising authority one over the other, which Christ says. There's a rule that uh, love thy neighbor as thyself. You know, I I, I just saw a, a TV show. It's an English TV show. Somebody had it on Netflix, and and I got to watch it. And it's called Broadchurch. It's about a murder. It's big, long, involved. Uh, case i don't want to give it all away but uh because uh, that would be kind of a spoiler but in the end there's there's a situation where somebody is not convicted of what they should have been convicted for according to the rules of the men who exercise authority one over the other and so they had their their government failed them and this this murderer this dangerous violent individual which actually i don't agree with the way in which they handled it but it was very biblical they took him to the edge of their community and they told him to leave and if he came back that they would kill him and pay the consequences uh i won't say who he was because then i'll be giving it away nobody knows if it wants to go and watch the show but anyway that the actual murderer he got you know, taken out to the edge of the community and told, don't come back. That's what stoning was. That you, you're not going to get anything in this community. Because now he could go somewhere else and get on welfare and he could do everything he wanted in the rest of the community and they actually are going to support him because they're all taxed. But in, in the Israelite community, you could be shunned. 
We're not going to help you. We're not going to do business with you. I mean, there was stoning up against the wall inside the community and there was stoning at the city gates. Stoning at the city gates, that was the most severe. You, you stone them out there and they are... Nobody's even going to do business with them. Totally shunned. Nobody's going to give them welfare. Stoning meant the stones of the altar, which are living stones, are not going to help him out. You know, the minister is not going to minister to him. In their in their world, in, in today's world, you think ministers are people who go around and counsel you and advise you and, you know, and, and pray with you and all this stuff. No, the ministers were the guys down there at the... Uh, uh, health offices, uh, the unemployment offices, uh, they were health, education, and welfare. The ministers in Israel were the government. They were representative. They were supported by free will offerings. But because they came together in this group of tens, hundreds, and thousands, if bullies came into their neighborhood to try to rob them or murder them or anything like that, they were already organized into platoons, battalions, and and they could come together. The union and discipline was shocking. Everybody was afraid to attack Israel for the first 400 years. I mean, some guys tried it. They all failed. But that was... Because you know that that's what you know we have an article up we show you that there's a lot of historians that say Canaan was not taken over by an invading force. The archaeological evidence is not there. Even the walls of Jericho, they weren't taken over by some marauding group of totalitarian Nazis. That they came into two areas. You have to see how the city states were all laid out at that time. They came into the area and they were welcomed. Wealthy, uh, strong family groups of people who had to, could not oppress you, but were healthy and, and like I say, rich. You know, the people in Canaan were, if you go into the grave sites, they were absolutely debilitated by parasites. Where did those parasites come from? Pork. Uh, uh, web-footed uh, waterfowl that they were raising. The pork was one of the worst. And uh, because they brought parasites. They they didn't wash enough. Israelites were all had to wash. They couldn't touch pork. They had to wash their feet when they came into the house. Why? Because that's how you brought in these parasites. That were absolutely, people didn't live to pass 40 amongst the Canaanites because they were ridden with these worms and parasites. The Israelites came in, they didn't have any of that. They said, boy, these guys all walk upright, they're strong, they're healthy, they're 60 years old, they can still wield a sword. What the heck? They're so wealthy that their ministers retire from annual labor at 55. How, how can that be? It was because they had a superior system. And people wanted to be a part of that. But the governments of those places did not want to be a part of that because they would lose power. Why do you think Christians were persecuted? Because people were starting to say, wow, hey, look, these guys are doing good. 
because they had a superior system. A superior what? System? You mean government? A government of the people, for the people, and by the people that did not exercise authority one over the other, but actually worked to care about one another as much as they cared about themselves, cared about their neighbor's rights as much as they cared. I don't hear these myth of authority guys preaching that, teaching that. Showing people how to gather and that. There's a lot of, a lot of pitfalls. <coughs> there's a, there's a lot of things that you want. Rules, if you want. That you want to put in the structure of this system. That we see Moses doing, we see Jesus doing. That works. You know, for a thousand, if people, you know, the supposed dark ages, I mean, there were, there were Irish monks calculating the circumference of the earth in 300 AD, in 400 AD. They had a system of navigation unparalleled way back then. They had libraries. Yeah, monks, uh, knew multiple languages. And we're, and we're providing social welfare. Health, I mean, the, the, their medicines were amazing. And people are trying to dis- study and find out exactly how are they dealing with these issues. And they're finding out they, they were veritable geniuses. Now, of course, there were poor people around in their communities that did not avail themselves of some of these what we call monks. Now, all monks were not made the same because that's that's the price of freedom is that some would be good at what they were doing, which was, you know, seeing to the health and well-being of the people, uh, strengthening the families. But there were vast communities of people during the Dark Ages that lived absolutely in peace. It wasn't until around 900 and 1,000 A.D. that there rose up the beast-type armies that would march in and wipe out whole communities and and drive the people out into uh, the wilderness. Now, why were they able to do that? One, it was prophesied. It said that the kingdom of heaven would rule for a thousand years and then the saint would be unchained again. The adversary would be unchained again. That's already taken place. And they, they went about, and they, we call it the Inquisition, killing and murdering true Christians all over the, the world. What was wrong, though? Why, why did those Christians, why were they losing this battle? Now, some of them remained Christians, were persecuted, and were killed, and some of them went underground, and everything. And today, people have tried to reform back to that Christianity. They're missing the mark. For the same reason that these people could be overrun by these beast armies that rose up. They learned to put a thousand, ten thousand men into the field. This is the, they became skilled at that. But what was it that the Christians failed to be skilled at? They prospered in their local villages, in their local valleys and communities, but they weren't able to stop these armies 
from Moldor, you can say, you know, what we see in the Lord of the Rings, from marching into their valley and destroying them. Why? Well, if you go back in history, you'll find example after example in around 600 A.D., 700 A.D., even back in 400 A.D., where kings tried to rise up and take over a community. And they were unable to do it because people from another community came and helped the people in that community. We tell about one of these stories in the book, That Kingdom Comes. Because they were all kings, but they're all kings in the kingdom of God. Everybody in every family were kings and queens in their own family. But they came together not just because they cared about their little congregation, their little village, their little valley. They came together because they were thinking the kingdom of heaven at hand. And they, even though these people might be over in, in what we call France today and they were in England, they would get in boats and go all the way across there to help defend them against an enemy. Or they would come all the way down from northern Germany to, to southern areas of Europe to defend communities down there where tyrants were rising up. Because they were thinking kingdom. They weren't just thinking their little congregation. Now they had their ministers in their local area that were teaching them, you know, how to be kind and how to care for one another. And they were doing that pretty good. But they weren't thinking kingdom. And so they became vulnerable to the invasion of these armies that went through and and just wiped out valley after valley after valley during, you know, the Inquisitions. And then those people put new people in those houses. And new communities rose up. And a false Christianity rose up. See, what Constantine was doing, most people don't realize is what Constantine was doing was he was taking the temples that had all gone from about you can go back to 200 uh, B.C. And even before, 300 B.C., there's evidence of it even back then. Of course, there was in Israel, too, the Hasmoneans. And those temples had become these systems where somebody had to pay in. Now, they often taxed foreigners at first, but then eventually they taxed their own people. And their own people became residents in their own communities. They didn't own their own land anymore. They could be taxed on that. They were taxed on their labor. They were taxed on everything they produced. There were sales taxes. And then, of course, there was a Social Security kind of tax. And all that went into the coffers of their temples that were supported by taxes. So you go back to our article on Lady Godiva, you can see that that's where they started going again. Where When was that? Ten hundreds. A thousand years after the... 1066. A thousand years after the fall of Jerusalem and the rise of the kingdom of God on earth. It spread all... And this part of the history, they just blocked it out. You just don't get to see it. There's some people coming out now, historians are coming out and saying the Dark Ages weren't all that dark. They keep you dark to it because they don't want you to figure out how a truly voluntary government operates. And until you find that out, you should not be free. You need to be friends with the unrighteous mammon. You should not be free. You need to repent 
And seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Learn how that works. Learn how that operates. Start doing that. Start being doers of the word. Paul preached Christ first. When he's talking to the churches, he's talking to people that are doing what you're not doing. There is authority. And we're going to talk more about this in other shows. And we'll just do a whole series on it. But I'll I'll go through some of these guys' writings and try to show you where they they channel your mind away from what you need to be doing. And you need to be doing it because God said, because you rejected Him, that this is going to happen to you. Paul said it. Peter said it. You'll be made merchandise, entangled again, curse your children. That's where you're at. No, you want to repent, you have to start thinking another way. And that way has to be the way of Christ. The way of Christ is not to go around saying, you know, look what Caesar's doing. You know, he did point out the Pharisees. He said that their Corbin made the word of God to none effect. But that's because he was teaching the people how to have a Corbin that made the word of God to effect. Corbin is simply the word sacrifice. Their sacrifice made the word of God to none effect because it was a tax. The only Corbin, the only sacrifice that makes the word of God to effect is charity. So you don't have to imagine. You have to do. If you do, freedom will come. And when the unrighteous mammon fails... You will be suitable for a more righteous habitation. But if you're not going to be, if you're just going to complain, if you're just going to say starve the beast, you're just going to say don't pay your taxes, like somehow that hurts a system that operates on debt. All you're doing, I've seen people lose their homes, lose their families. Because they follow this kind of stuff instead of follow the simple directions of Jesus Christ. Jesus was not calling a scattered flock to be a scattered flock. He was calling a scattered flock to come together to be rain sheep who live in the world but not of the world. They follow another shepherd. But they're a band that comes together, shoulder to shoulder. Not bound by ropes. You know, that's, I've seen people herd goats together where they had to take them down the road and, you know, through lots of different places and they tie all the goats together. We actually have done that before. Because goats have a tendency to spread out and go their own way and run over and eat the neighbor's flowers and, so you tie them all together and all you have to do is hang on to one and you got them all. Because they don't pull together like mules. They all pull in different directions. And so they, but you tie them together. You civilize them. <laughs> you, you, you bind them together. What we have here is goats saying there is no authority. Cut the ropes. Just run off and do whatever you want. Follow your conscience. You can certainly do that. I'm not going to stop you from following your conscience. But if you want to survive, you need to come together. If you 
come together, you need to come together with the Spirit of Christ to serve others, to save others. He didn't come to save himself. He came to save others. And so there's, we're going to start a series of call-in programs that people can call in and we'll record the programs. And uh, we'll set them up for different times. And we got one this afternoon if people want to be a part of that. And you can ask questions and we'll, we'll answer these specific questions and how they work. Um, and how the kingdom works. You don't have to just imagine it. You can be it. Be the government of God. The government you want to be. The voluntary government that operates by faith, hope, and charity and that perfect law of liberty. All government is not bad. And let the other governments punish the wicked. It should not be a fear to you. It's not going to be just an instantaneous snap gratification. It took you a long time to get into the present bondage, the present condition, the present turmoil that we see in the world today. And it may take a little while for you to learn the art of liberty. The art of liberty under God. You don't need rebels rioting in the streets. You don't need uh, the raucousness of people who despise authority. Woe unto those who despise authority. It, it's not the way to go. And, and we'll we'll talk more about that, especially in relationship to the family. And uh, there are some quotes here from, because he talks about the family, this one author. I've got three authors lined up here. He talks about, you know, family and fathers. If your father tells you to go and uh, rob a store, that you don't have to obey him. If he tells you to go in there and shoplift, you don't have to obey him. Because he doesn't have the authority to tell you to do that. But he has an awful lot of authority to tell you to do an awful lot of things. Uh, You don't own your toys. Your father owns your toys. You don't own your room. Your father owns your room. You don't own the dinner table. Your father owns the dinner table. You don't own the food that he puts on the table. Your father does. You know, the reason there's seatbelt laws is because there's health care. If you're going to go through the windshield uh, and then charge the government to take care of your medical needs... They get to tell you you got to put on a safety belt. And you see, that's that's where you're at. You're a card-carrying member of a society that forces its neighbor, forces everybody to contribute, to sacrifice, to take care of the needy of their society. And they do a pretty good job at taking care of the needy. They're going to fall short when things are really bad. But right now, they're doing way better than the churches. As a matter of fact, a lot of the churches that have hospitals and everything, those hospitals won't even survive without the government's Medicare and Medicaid. Those those Christian church hospitals are billing the government to take care of the needy. That's not kingdom. Can you take care of the needy without billing the government, without Social Security, without Medicare and Medicaid? Well, until then... You should be a slave. 
But until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.